Let's pray for God's word to impact us deeply this morning. So once again, Lord, we want to open our hearts up to your word. And I pray that by the work of your spirit, we would be hungry to learn your word this morning. Hungry to learn the word of God. We can't produce that. That's got to be a gift from you. And so we're asking you for it. Give it to us, Lord. We know Satan's going to be prowling. Distractions are going to be coming. Other thoughts are going to be flitting through our minds. Lord, would you help us? And would you teach us? And I need your help, Lord. Give me accuracy according to your word and the heart that you want me to have. And just work, Lord, in our our lives, I pray. Right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Well, this morning we're starting a brand new series on the book of James. And our plan is, Lord willing, every week, except for next week, which is Easter, but uh, for the next few months, we're going to be working through every week the book of James. Let's go ahead and turn to uh, James chapter 1. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. I I want you all to have a Bible in front of you that you can look on with. The Bible is the most important. Much more important than anything I've got to say is what you're going to be reading in the the Bible. So turn to James chapter 1. And the Bibles we're passing out, that's on page 1011. I've had a great time just starting to dig into this book. I've been reading it through over the last months, preparing. And I want to start off by asking this question. And that is, uh, who is James and why should we listen to him? Okay, fair question. I mean, there's lots of people we could listen to. We could listen to Oprah, right? We can listen to Sean Penn. I mean, we can listen to, you know, Sean Hannity. We can listen to Dr. Phil. I mean, there's all kinds of different people we can listen to for all kinds of different reasons. They're 21st century, they're cutting edge. Why do we want to listen to James? Okay, And the reason is because of who James was. There's things about James that are not true of Sean Penn or Sean Hannity or Oprah Winfrey or Dr. Filler, any of those kind of people. Look at how James describes himself in James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's just huge if you think about that, okay? There is a God. Start there. Just feel that. Who's created everything. He's created you so that you could depend upon him and worship him and have your heart satisfied in knowing him. And so everything that exists, you, this building, the globe, the universe, is from God and it's for God's purposes. So everything's about God. And we've all revolted against God turned our backs on God, and even though we deserve judgment from God in great mercy and love, as we've been singing about this morning, and many of you read scriptures, God came to the earth in the person of Jesus, and he died on the cross, being punished for the punishment that we deserve to be punished, punished with the punishment we deserve to be punished with, for our sin, so that if we'll bend the knee to him, put our trust in Jesus, we'll be forgiven, Hearts will be changed, will be restored into relationship with God, and then Jesus rose from the dead showing that everything he taught was true. So everything 
in existence, this is not an overstatement, everything that exists is about God and about his son, Jesus. And James tells us that he's a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus. Now, why should we believe anything he's going to write in this book? That's what he says he is. And if you look at who this James was, it's a fascinating story. This James was Jesus' brother. Or half-brother, I guess, if you want to be technical. Jesus was born of a virgin. James was not. Biological father and mother. But James was Jesus' brother. And in the rest of the New Testament, we learn about James. He did not follow Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. He scoffed at Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. But, after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus personally appeared to James. He chose out James, just like he chose out Paul. We don't have a lot of details about what happened then, but we do know that James bent the knee and received Jesus, his earthly brother, but as much more as his Lord and as his Savior and as his life treasure from then on. And so James became a follower of Jesus. Which means that James was an eyewitness of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, right? He was there that whole time. Not only that, in Galatians 1.19, Paul says that James was an apostle. Jesus had appeared to him after the resurrection, just like Paul, and had called, appointed James to be an apostle, which meant that James was commissioned by Jesus, gifted by Jesus, to receive 100% true truth directly from God himself, which he has put in writing in this letter. This is an apostle's writing. 100% true truth. And not only that, but James lived what he taught here. Okay, The reason we know that, um, a church historian named Hegesippus uh, wrote around the uh, 2nd century, and he said that in the year 62 AD, James was arrested, tried before uh, scribes and Pharisees. And they simply said one thing to him. They said, renounce Jesus or we will stone you today. He loved Jesus, did not renounce him. He was killed, 62 AD. So James, brother of Jesus, eyewitness of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, apostle gifted to write truth 100% from God, who loved Jesus so much that he was willing to be stoned to death for him. Okay? That's who James was. And, and you are holding in your hands a letter written by someone like that. In your Bible, you've got this letter from James. That is an awesome thing. Do you feel that? Mm. So that's who James was. That's why we should listen to him. Now, who is he writing this letter to? Verse One, continue, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. So when he says he's writing to the 12 tribes, if you've read your Old Testament, the Old Testament 12 tribes refer to the nation of Israel, Jewish people. So he's writing to Jewish believers, early 40s AD, and and the vast majority of the church in those early years was Jewish. So he's writing to Jewish believers who were in the dispersion, which probably means 
It's probably referring to a, a persecution that broke out in A.D. 44 in Jerusalem. You can read about it in Acts 11. And all the believers fled. They left their homes behind. They left their businesses behind. They left their possessions behind. They fled into the surrounding area to avoid the persecution. And so James is writing to these Jewish believers who are refugees who've had to flee, leaving everything behind. And as you read through the rest of James, you can get clues as to what condition they were in. They were suffering terribly. They were taken to courts. They were scoffed at by the wealthy. They were not getting their wages for the menial jobs they were finding to work. They were in a very difficult place. He's writing this letter then to suffering believers. Okay? So what does he say to suffering believers? If you will take these words and not water them down, not mess with them, just take them at face value, it'll blow your mind what he says. Listen to this. Verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Can I notice, first of all, verse 2, when you meet trials. He doesn't say, count it all joy if you meet trials. He says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials, meet various trials. Because the abundant life that Jesus promises his followers, that word abundant does not mean trouble-free. It does not mean no suffering. You don't get that anywhere in the pages of the scripture. Jesus promised suffering and trials, especially for those who are going to follow him. And so we face trials. Okay? We face small trials. We get flat tires and we come down with the flu and, and we face big trials. Diagnosed with cancer, having a child become rebellious and wayward, lose your job. So we face small trials, we face big trials, we face trials. And so James here in this, these verses wants to help us understand how we should feel. How you should feel when you encounter various trials. Let's just try this out. Let's say you're driving away from church today and you get a flat tire. Okay? Okay, flat tire. How would you feel? Feel probably frustrated, impatient. Uh, What else? Bothered. What? Annoyed. That's a good word. Okay, are you feeling it? Okay, we hope that doesn't happen, but... That's the kind of thing that could happen. That's how we tend to feel. But James, James tells us to count it all joy if you're driving away from our gathering here and you get a flat tire. Count it all joy, my brothers. You like that, Dale? Okay, so you're not alone. All right. Now, some people um, I've heard teach that the word joy in the Bible doesn't really mean a feeling. They say it means more like a mindset or more like a, 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 a kind of life, a, a, an approach to life, a way of living. I don't think that's right. I don't think we can get off the hook that way. Uh, if you study the Greek word joy, it means joy. It, it just does, straight up. I and mean, every time you read it, it's, uh, it's a feeling of intense pleasure. Count it all joys. That, doesn't, that makes it even worse. It's like, I'm not helping you yet. Okay. 
Now, one thing that might help a little bit is that word all, it could mean only feeling joy, but I don't think that fits the rest of scriptures. The same word could mean intense joy, which could be mingled with other feelings like sorrow. Okay. Now, the reason I say that is because in 2 Corinthians 6, Paul says he describes his own emotional makeup as a, as a passionate follower of Jesus, and he says something that's really worth doing some deep thinking about. He says, I'm sorrowful, but always rejoicing. See how sorrow and joy can be mingled together? Like just for example, if, if the Lord took my wife home, 34 years of marriage, I would be very, very sad. Because I love her. And it'd be right. It'd be a holy sadness. I, I hope, I trust him. Mean, it could lapse into despair. I, I trust God would give me grace. But I think at the same time, I, I could, and I hope that I would have grace to feel an intense joy. At the same time, right? So, so don't hear this as some kind of a one-dimensional, like we paste on the smile and we're doing what James wants us to do. Let, let's, let's try to think this through in terms of how the scriptures teach it. It can be mingled with other holy affections as well, like sorrow, but it, it is intense joy. James is calling you, along with other feelings, to feel intense joy when you encounter various trials. So if we take this command at face value and don't water it down, what James is saying, it's really astonishing, isn't it? Do we have this one like wired? Should I move on to the next, next paragraph? I don't know, I can't. I need to work on it some more. So just, just let this think. What James is saying is that if you lose your job, you should see that as, a, as, as calling for intense joy. Right? If you get a flat tire, calling for intense joy. Come now with the flu, calling for intense joy, or more serious medical issues. So do you feel what James, I mean, James, okay, tell us now. The question we've got to ask is why? What does James know about trials that, that I don't know, right? Because James, one thing I love about the biblical authors is they don't just give you commands like, count it all joy, number two, do this. The biblical authors give reasons why. And in fact, you can only obey the commands in Scripture if you understand and embrace the reasons. And so James tells us why. Don't you love that? He says, count it all joy, my brothers, I'm reading verse 2, when you meet trials of various kinds, for, which because is what that word means, here's the reason why, because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That's why Trials call for intense joy. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, what does that mean? We, we got we to unpack that so we feel it. Okay? So just walk with me here. The word testing could have two different meanings. It can either mean testing as in evaluating your faith or testing as in refining your faith. Okay? Now, I don't think it just means evaluating, because, for example, Israel was tested when they were in the wilderness and had no water, right? They were tested as, in terms of their faith was evaluated, and they were found wanting, right? Their faith was tested as an evaluation. They didn't have any faith. Did they get any steadfastness out of that? Did, did that testing of faith produce any steadfastness for them? No. 
So it's not just the evaluation of your faith produces steadfastness, it's the refining of your faith. The same word testing can mean either evaluation or refining. And I'm persuaded that what James wants us to focus on here is it's the refining of your faith that produces steadfastness. Okay? Does that make sense? The word testing can mean either evaluation or it can mean refinement. And I think James is talking about refining here because just evaluation doesn't necessarily produce any steadfastness. But refining does. So how do trials refine our faith? It's not just you get the flat tire and, okay, I guess, you know, all right, all right, I'll trust you, okay, get it fixed, drive away. Was any faith refined in that process? No. No faith was refined in that process. It's, it's a process you've got to understand and, and go through. So the best illustration I've heard of this, I heard it back in, like, I was thinking, 1979. John Piper was teaching a class in 1 Peter, and he gave me this illustration that has just been so... I've used it here before, okay? But it's so helpful. I want you all to really get this. Some of you haven't heard it, though, so I'll go ahead and share it. It's like... Imagine that your, your, your life is like a pier stretching out over the ocean, okay? And just like a, a pier, like over in Santa Cruz, a pier is resting on wooden pilings, right? In the same way, you can picture your life like your identity, your security, your heart satisfaction, as resting on wooden pilings, like pilings of health. Are you relying health for satisfaction, identity, future, just joy, peace? Uh, career, we rely on career for those things. Money, we rely on money for those things. Friends, right? So we, we have our lives resting on these wooden pilings. The problem, though, is that none of those pilings are what God intended to have your life rest on. None of those will last forever, and none of those will support you fully. And you can tell that because there's times when waves come and hit against the, the pier, and those start to shake. Some of them get knocked down when trials come. And so you're... Your life is like, ah, oh, you have moments of, more than moments, you have major times of insecurity and fear and, and not, not, you know, not feeling strong because you're not resting on the piling that you were created to rest on. But then one day someone comes up to you and, and shares the gospel and tells you about the super piling. There's a super piling. Jesus Christ. He is the one that you were created to rely on, to rest your entire life on. On, to rest it on Jesus. And so you look at who Jesus is in the Gospels and you say, yes, what a piling. He's awesome. Look at his strength and his mercy and look what he's done in dying on the cross for me. And so you welcome Jesus into the center of your life, the center of your peer, and you rest your weight on him and, whoa, strong. Remember that? Secure. Peace. Yes. Thank you. That's what happens when you become a follower of Jesus. Now, at the same time, you're still resting some of your weight on those other pilings, right? And every one of us here who are followers of Jesus, you're resting some of your security on your career, on friendships, on money, on health. Some of your futures rested on those things, okay? And to the extent that your weight is still resting on other things besides Jesus, you are less secure, less satisfied, less strong than God wants you to be. Are you tracking with me? Okay, so from time to time, God will bring on the winter surf, the big old waves to come. 
And when that wave, when those waves come, Jesus is superpiling, doesn't even budge. Rock, solid, no matter what trials come, solid. But those other pilings get shaken by trials, right? You feel a strange pain in your side and that health piling, oh, well, what, what's going to happen, right? What's this going to mean? Or, or you lose your job and the, the career piling gets shaken and the money piling gets shaken. God does that to refine your faith. Oh, he loves you. And he allows, he ordains trials to come to show you the weakness in those pilings. And so the way you refine your faith is the waves come, like maybe you lose your job, and the money and the career pilings get shaken, and you're thinking, that's right. Career, money, those are not suitable trusts for me. Nothing wrong with having money. Nothing wrong with having a job. Doesn't mean you get to quit your job. Okay, but okay, I'm going I'm to take my trust out of money and put it into Jesus. I'm going to take my trust out of career and put it into Jesus. And so you rest all the more in Jesus. Before the trial came, some of your faith was in other things besides Jesus. The trial showed you, don't trust those things. Those things are not going to hold you up long term. Take your trust out of those things. Put your trust in Jesus. So in the midst of the trial, you've lost your job. You rest even more of your trust in Jesus and he meets you. Oh, Friday afternoon. Boom, got hit with a trial. Man, there's always something. Just bam, hit me. And uh, I was just so distracted and I was fearful and, and uh, just had to put everything else aside from my sermon preparation. Just open up Psalm 62. My soul waits in silence for God alone. And I've been thinking about this. So I took my trust out of this other thing that was being threatened, something very dear to me. Then it's not a bad thing, but I shouldn't be trusting in it for my security. And put it into Jesus. And you've experienced this. Ah, oh, peace, strength. I was saying, okay, Lord, intense joy, could that happen right now? And it happened. It happened. But do you understand that when you, when you go through the process of seeing what pilings are being shaken by this trial, okay, they're being shown as weak, I'm going to take my trust out of them, put them into Jesus all the more, you've been refined, Right? You've just been refined. You're now stronger. You're now at more peace. You've got more faith in Jesus. Does that make sense? Okay. Waves come, shake the other pilings, not Jesus piling, only the other pilings. That's why trials are hard. Oh, you feel bad. You feel nervous. You feel fearful. Okay. I've been trusting those too much. I'm going to put my trust in Jesus. Rest all the more. And you get peace. You get joy. You get strength. And you get steadfastness. The testing, refining of your faith produces steadfastness. How? Well, because before the trial, my faith was dissipated. It wasn't just in Jesus. It was, it was spread to other things, and so I was weaker. After the trial, more of my faith is in Jesus, so I'm stronger now when future trials come. I'm, I've got more steadfastness given to me. Does that make sense? Okay, so I'm trying to unpack this phrase that we can just easily read over. The testing, refining, of your faith produces steadfastness. Okay, so that's what James is talking about here. Now, with that in mind, read verses 2 and 3 again. Count it all joy. See it as a call for intense joy, 
my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for, here's why, you know that the the testing, the refining of your faith produces steadfastness. So here's why we rejoice in trials. Trial comes and you're going to think, it's going to refine my faith, and I'm going to have more steadfastness as a result. That's why I should feel intense joy right now. The trial is going to refine my faith, and it's going to bring me more steadfastness. That's why there should be intense joy. And my problem at this point in my preparation was I was not feeling it. It's like, what's so great about steadfastness, right? Like, all the different trials, I know some of you are going through very intense trials. I think some of the trials brothers and sisters here have gone through, are going through, and, and many of us will go through very serious trials. What's so, what's so valuable about steadfastness? that the fact that I'm going to get steadfastness would make me feel intense joy no matter what trial you'll ever face. What's so great about steadfastness? That's what I wanted to ask James. And I love how he he tells us in verse 4. Okay? Here's why steadfastness is so valuable. Verse 4. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete Lacking in nothing. Why is steadfastness so valuable? Because the the result of steadfastness is you will be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now, now, what does that mean? The commentators differ on this, but I'm convinced that James is talking about heaven. This is kind of a new thought for me in the last couple months as I've been pondering this verse. Let me give you two reasons why I think he's talking about heaven. One is in verse 5, next verse, he talks about us lacking wisdom. Steadfastness causes, means that we're going to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And yet in verse 5, he talks about us lacking wisdom. Will there be any time in this life that we won't lack wisdom? I don't think so. We're always going to need wisdom from God. So the lacking nothing, I don't think it would be talking about this life. I think it's talking about the life to come. Second reason in chapter 3, verse 2, James talks about how we all stumble in many ways. We're going to get there. Talking about the, the, the speech. And it's, no one can bridle the tongue. All of us sin with our tongues. He says, if you didn't sin with your tongue, you'd be a perfect man, he says. Implying that in this life, none of us are going to be perfect men or women. James 3, 2. Does that make sense? But yet he says the outcome of steadfastness is that you will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So I, I think James is talking about heaven. He's talking about the time when we will have unending face-to-face fellowship with the living Jesus. Okay, let me try to give you a feel for this. Because you've been saved, because you came to the place where you trusted Jesus as your Lord and your Savior and your, your heart-satisfying treasure, you have times when you meet Jesus and feel and experience his very presence by the Holy Spirit. You have times like that. Like I was just describing what happened to me Friday afternoon. And I went from fear and despair, I'm not overstating, to in about 30 minutes of time, Jesus just met me. You, you know, if, if you're trusting Jesus, you, you know what I'm talking about. And I was satisfied. I was strengthened. There was peace. There was love. See, Jesus isn't just somebody out there that we believe in at a distance. We can know him and experience him. And so that's what we have as followers of Jesus. Now, as as great as those moments are in this life, it's just a down payment compared to what it's going to be 
compared to the full inheritance that God says he's promised to us, the full inheritance that we'll experience of seeing Jesus face to face. But the, the little taste I had Friday, that's just a down payment as rich and as, I mean, to know Jesus in that way is infinitely more satisfying than anything else that the world can offer. And yet that's just a down payment compared to the full inheritance of beholding his presence that we're going to receive in heaven. So because you've been saved, you've got tastes of that, and you long for the day when you will see him face to face and experience face to face unhindered fellowship with him. That's when you'll be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Okay, but now the problem is, between now and heaven, there's hundreds, thousands of difficulties that you're going to face, temptations that you're going to face, struggles that you're going to be going through, conflicts that you're going to experience, attack that's going to be coming your way. And Jesus says in Matthew 24, you will only make it to heaven. I'll try to picture it. So here, here you are between now and heaven. There's all these difficulties. And Jesus says you will only make it to heaven if you have steadfastness. So just let that sink in. Because you're trusting Jesus, you experience him, you love him, you long to be with him forever, face to face. That's going to come. But to get there, I have to have steadfastness. Feel that? I'm trying to help you see why steadfastness is such an important thing. I have to have steadfastness if I'm going to get there. And Jesus promises that everyone he saves, he will give to them all the steadfastness that they need. He will give you every bit of steadfastness that you need to make it from here to there. You've got all kinds of difficulties and struggles and attack and conflicts. But Jesus says, listen, not to worry. I will give you every bit of steadfastness that you need to make it. Not just make it, but be more than a conqueror the whole way through. He will give you all the steadfastness that you need. How does he give us steadfastness? Through trials as we let the trials refine our faith. Every trial, this is such a radically different way of thinking of trials, but every trial is a, is a gift from Jesus to you here. Let this refine your faith. I, it'll give you more steadfastness. Every trial. Now, see, there's lots of other things we could say about trials. The Bible says lots of other things about trials, about how God will comfort us in trials, about how God will provide strength during trials. He'll provide everything we need in and after the trial. He'll be there for us in the midst of the trial. A lot of other stuff we could say about trials, but let's just focus on the one thing that James wants to focus on here about trials. Every trial is purposed by Jesus to bring you more steadfastness through refining your faith. It's a gift to you. So here's the illustration I thought of. I hope this, I hope this isn't too dorky. Okay. So here you are here, and there's heaven, and like imagine there's a minefield. Like, imagine there's like a hundred miles of minefields between you and heaven. And if you step on one of those mines, you're going to be blown up and killed. Okay, you won't make it. Now, picture every trial that comes your way is Jesus giving you with that trial. It's, it's a trial, but he says, now with that trial, I'm providing you a mine detector and a mine diffuser. For every mine you will face in the next part of the journey. Here, here's the mine detector. Here's the mine diffuser for every mine you're going to face. So here's a trial. It's not going to be easy. You will sorrow. But 
You can feel intense joy because what I'm giving you with that trial is the mind detector and the mind diffuser. And we would say, thank you. And then we step out. Detect, diffuse. Detect, diffuse. Detect, diffuse. See how that works? I'm not sure that one's working. (laughs) I'm trying, okay? All right, well, anyway, uh, you think about that. If that works for you, think about it. If not, just forget about that one. But see, that, that's why every trial calls for intense joy, because every trial, Jesus, with love in his heart and maybe tears on his face, because he, he knows the sorrow, but he says, here, this will refine your faith. This will give you steadfastness, because I'm going to give you every bit of steadfastness you will need to come home. See, everybody Jesus saves will be in heaven, because he'll give you all the steadfastness that you need, and the way he gives it to you is through trials. All right, now. Let me give you four steps for how to respond to trials, and then we'll open up for some questions. We've got time for that. That's good. Here's four steps. I'd actually like to... Actually, let me open it up for questions right now, and I want to come back and kind of do this as a little bit of a lab. So what, what questions has this raised in your mind? That's a good question. So why do bad things happen? And I, I think what the scriptures teach, just like in this passage, is that every... In fact, I'm really glad you raised that, because that's something I wanted to say. Um... Romans 8.28 is is my go-to verse, which can become a cliche, but, oh, it's awesome when you think about it. All things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. So if you're loving God, you're trusting in Jesus, every single trial is bringing you great good. Great good. So, you know, a lot of times we say, you know, the Bible doesn't really tell us why trials happen. We don't see all the reasons why trials happen, but we do see some really, really big. We see all the ones we need, namely, to bring you great good. And the great good is you're conformed into the image of Christ. You're going to experience more more joy in displaying his glory. He is your heart's satisfaction. So so every trial brings good. So um, Genesis 50 Verses 19 and 20, Jamar, is a verse that I use a lot. And it's where Joseph is telling, talking to his brothers who sold him into slavery and lost at least a decade of his life in prison, remember? And Joseph says to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. That's true of every trial. Every trial. Now that, that is an amazing thing to say, but that's what the Bible says. Every trial is meant by God for good. I mean, there's people here in this room who have suffered the loss of loved ones, children, fought cancer, loved ones passing away, who've lost jobs, who've had financial setbacks. And uh, so we're not in an ivory tower talking about these things. I've not suffered that much in my own life, but I know many of you have. But God meant it for good. And here we see what one of the big goods is that he meant it for. He wants to give you even more strength and security in a refined faith and the steadfastness that comes through that because he's going to bring you home to heaven. That's a start anyway, I hope. Other questions? We need steadfastness to get to heaven. Jesus will give his people all the steadfastness they need to be more than conquerors all the way to heaven. And the way he gives that to us is through trials. 
as they refine our faith. So those are the main things I've been trying to say. So it's probably one of those. Okay? So the reason we believe in, in, uh, in, in heaven isn't because we know where it is. It's because we, we've met the one who's said it's there. So that's where I'd go. I think that's a good translation. Steadfast, endurance is how the New American Standard puts it. So steadfastness, endurance, patience. I think those are all overlapping concepts. Um, the idea of patience is that you can, you can continue through difficulty. That's what, that's what patience is, right? You don't lose it in the midst of a difficulty. You, 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 you press on. You're steadfast through it. That's my understanding of patience, at least the, the, the Greek word here. So does that help? Okay. Okay, let me just encourage you to, to walk through these four steps. Some of you are going through trials right now. And so I just want to have you walk through this and, and to pray through these steps to see if these help you. And the first, and I would encourage you, even if you're not going through a trial, to, to get these in your mind and heart so that you can respond to trials this way. The first is pray for Jesus to help you. Okay, we cannot do this without asking for Jesus' help. Okay, this is not in us. We do not have the capacity for this. We need his help. And so ask him to help you. Pray earnestly. Ask someone in your home group to pray for you, to pray with you. So pray and ask Jesus to help you. So just do that right now. Just bow your head right now. Those of you who are in trials and those of you who aren't, pray for those who are. And just say, Jesus, right now, would you come right now and help me to taste some of what James is talking about in this passage. Help me, Lord. Go ahead and do that. Okay, then the second is to see the trial as a joyful gift from Jesus. Count it all joy. Intense joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. We do not naturally see our trials that way, but, but right now, see it that way. The, the truth is that through this trial, his purpose is to give you the most important thing this side of heaven, which is steadfastness, endurance, patience. He, that's his intention. He will give you that. You need endurance tomorrow, the next day, the next day. He will give you the endurance that you need through this trial, which is why we can say thank you. This is a gift from you. Steadfastness, I need that. I long for that. So we need to work on not grumbling about the trials. We need to work on not complaining because when we grumble and we complain, we're, we're, we're not Responding to what James is saying here. And then third, let the trial refine your faith. So here's what I'm talking about. Don't just grit your teeth and endure it. Don't just say, well, it'll be fine or God will take care of me. It doesn't refine your faith and that won't bring steadfastness. So intentionally let the trial refine your faith. And the way you do that is by noticing what pilings are being shaken by this trial. What security, what, 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 what thing that you've been seeking your identity in or putting your trust in, what piling is being shaken by this trial? See that and then notice it's shaking. But Jesus the superpiling is not shaking. So consciously, intentionally take your trust, your identity, your security out of those other pilings 
and rest them afresh in Jesus. And as you do that, prayerfully, in the word, strength will come, comfort will come, peace will come, joy will come. But that's the process. Refining doesn't happen automatically. I go through trials all the time and don't, don't, don't let them refine me. I don't want to do that, but we all tend to do that. Consciously, intentionally, let the trial refine your faith. And then as you do that, steadfastness will be increased. If, if you're doing that right now, to the extent that, that you're doing that, you're receiving steadfastness to avoid the minds in the minefield the rest of the day today, to, to press through the, the attacks and the conflicts that will be happening through the rest of today. And then fourth, thank Jesus for the gift of steadfastness. He's brought his comfort to you. He's brought his peace to you. He's brought his joy to you. He's strengthened you and met you, and he's given you steadfastness. So thank him. Thank him for it. You need steadfastness to make it to heaven. Jesus promises to give all of his saved ones all the steadfastness they need to be more than conquerors all the way, and the way he gives it to us is through trials. So thank him for it. Okay, let's pray. Lord, I pray for your power to come upon us. Many here, Lord, I know, are in the thick of difficult trials. And they're feeling that sorrow like Paul talked about, and I pray that you would enable them. Also what Paul said is that their sorrow would be mingled with joy. As they meet you, as their faith is refined, as they sink their, as they rest their weight even more on you, Jesus, the super piling, and that you bring peace, you'd bring strength, You'd bring comfort. You'd let them rest. You'd satisfy their hearts with your presence. And Lord, that they could feel the steadfastness coming upon them. So would you do that, Lord? I pray right now for those here who are in the the midst of trials. And Lord, I pray that in our home groups and in our church here, Lord, that we would be a church that is prepared for trials that we wouldn't be surprised when trials come, but that we would come before you and call upon you and seek your face and receive from you and, and let those trials refine us and let the steadfastness come and receive the wisdom you have for us. So let us be a church, Lord, that, that suffers well, that goes through trials well, that knows how to encourage others, our brothers and sisters in our home groups as they go through trials so that we can grow in refined faith and steadfastness together. And Lord, we look forward to that day when we will see you face to face and be filled with joy, unspeakable, full of glory. And Lord, that'll make every trial worth it. And that's why we we, we cherish the steadfastness you give us now. And so we thank you. So bring your power upon us now, Lord, I pray. 